page 1604 in your pew Bibles or on your large print sheets. Page 1604. Our scripture text for today. Page 1604, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, page 1604. Hear now the word of God. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. And beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we're going to be focusing on verse 16 and really on just one word in the Greek in verse 16, although here in the, uh, here in, uh, the English translation you see it in two words, without controversy, without controversy, although it's one word in the Greek, as we will see. And by looking at this, we're going to see today, the Bible tells us the means by which the church preserves and maintains the truth. The Bible tells us the means by which the church preserves and maintains the truth. What is the church all about? This is one of the things we've been considering. What is its mission? Well, certainly to worship God as an upward direction. To show love to all of the members, and so there's an inward direction. And to preach the gospel to the world, which is an outward direction. But in order to preach the gospel... And indeed, in order to edify the people who are in the church, it must be founded on the truth of the word of God. And that's why in verse 15, Paul talks about the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now this mission, if you will, is helpful in our understanding the church's purpose. This text then here in verses 15 and 16 as we've been considering over the last couple of weeks, this text tells us that the church preserves and maintains the truth which as we know is objective. It's not determined by feelings or emotions. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Not 5 as I 
jokingly said, you remember a couple of weeks ago, right? It's objective. It doesn't matter whether you feel good about that or not. Totally irrelevant. It is objective. It is outside of us. And that's very important to understand because so much of our society today is not built on truth. It's built on a rejection of truth. So much of our society today is built on feelings rather than that which is the word of God. But also, it is not just the truth in, 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 um, uh, by itself, if you will, but it has a particular focus. It's the truth as it is in Jesus. That is to say, it's the truth that is centered on the gospel. As we looked at this idea of the church being the pillar and ground or pillar and seat of the truth, we noted that the church supports and brings attention to the truth, just like a, a throne is where a monarch sits, a king or a queen, in order to, to bring attention not to the throne, but to bring attention to the one who is sitting on the throne. And so the pillar and seat, the pillar and ground or foundation of the truth, it is also the church of the living God or the house of God, the living God. What an interesting phrase. In contrast to the false gods of this world that are no gods at all. But also, as we looked at last week, it is the mystery of godliness that is maintained by the church, that is proclaimed by the church, that mystery of godliness which is centered on Christ. And there you find these six statements at the end of verse 16. God was manifested in the flesh. God, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is God and man. Justified in the spirit. His sacrifice was accepted so that we know that we now have an access to the Father through him. Seen by angels. Those mysterious heavenly beings. that are all around us, ways that we don't even know. That's the point, right? We can't see them. But when we gather for worship, we're gathering in their presence. Well, seen by angels who ministered to Jesus, who were there, who were witnesses of all the events of his life from his birth through to his temptation in the wilderness through to his suffering, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. Jesus was seen by angels who testify as to who he is, who indeed want to, as, as scripture says, they want to inquire, they're curious. They want to inquire, they, they understand something, but they'd love to know more. But what they know drives them, leads them to worship, does it not? but seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles. What a wonderful thing. The gospel goes not just to Jews, but now people of every tribe, of every race, of every tongue, are brought into the kingdom, believed on. Not just does it go out, but now believed on in the world, people accepting that, and then received up into glory. So this is, a, in a sense, a summary statement of who Jesus is and what he did. And it's, it's 
said to be the mystery of godliness. As we said last week, everyone loves a good mystery. But this mystery now is what has been revealed. We now come to... we. We now come to the end, as it were, the final revelation where Ecu Poirot, or Miss Marple, reveals everything. The clues are there, but now the detective at the end of the story, Sherlock Holmes, whomever, pulls it all together. It was a mystery, and there's still some mysteriousness about this, isn't there? But nevertheless, it has been fully revealed in terms of the new covenant. So now the question today is, all right, so the church is to bear witness to the truth, and the truth is this mystery of godliness, this gospel, and so forth. What means then, or what methods, should the church use to preserve and maintain the truth? What tools should the church use? See, means are like tools. Now, if we had a, uh, if we had to screw something into a piece of wood, okay, if we had to screw something into a piece of wood, first of all, we'd probably want to drill a hole that's got some width to it, right? Don't want to just start screwing. You want to have a little bit of a hole to help you to screw it. And furthermore, I know that none of us here would want to do it by hand, right? You want to take a screwdriver. That's going to help you a lot more. That's a tool to help you get that screw where you need it to go. And so means are like tools. It's easier to use a screwdriver rather than your bare hand. And in a similar way, there are methods, there are tools that the church can use to maintain the truth. And so we're going to look at three of these today that are related, confessions, creeds, and catechisms. Confessions, creeds, and catechisms. Now what's interesting, and I'll come back to this point later as well, but what is interesting as you think about it, is that to one degree or another, everyone uses the same type of tools in order to promote a viewpoint. For example, the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. Now, Some of its statements are noble, some are questionable, but in any case, it functions in many ways like a confession of faith. Or how about an American's creed? This has been set forth as what Americans are to believe. I believe in the United States of America as a government of the people, by the people, for the people, whose just powers are derived from the consent of the governed, a democracy and republic, a sovereign nation of many sovereign states, a perfect union, one and inseparable, and so forth. Well, that's a creed. That's the American's creed. There are are also atheist creeds, those who don't believe in God, who still have their own set of beliefs. One person saying, I believe in time, matter, and energy, which make up the whole of the world. I believe in reason, evidence, and the human mind, the only tools we have. 
They are the product of natural forces in a majestic but impersonal universe, grander and richer than we can imagine, a source of endless opportunities for discovery, and so forth. Well, that's a creed, is it not? We can also point to the uh, communist manifesto, those who are communist in this world, who put forth a statement, a manifesto, or the Humanist Manifesto of 1933. And let me just say as an aside, this is one reason why our society is so messed up today. Since the Humanist Manifesto has been so uh, influential and informs and governs education, the media, politics, including both major political parties. So these statements then, these manifestos, creeds, declarations, and so forth, help to summarize what a person or organization believes. Well, it's no different in terms of the church. So let's look, first of all, at the idea of confessions. You notice how I said, you remember that I said there's one word, in the English it's two words, that is really the key here that we're, that we're focusing on today, without controversy. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now in this verse, we have, we could say, a confession of faith. These six points that we talked about, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. That's, a, in, in essence, a confession of faith. And it is introduced by means of this phrase, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now that term, without controversy, actually in the Greek, comes from one word, homologia. Homo, H-O-M-O, logia, L-O-G-I-A. So I'm going to break this down for us. So we can translate it without controversy, but a better way to say is it really means to speak the same. Or we could say, and confessedly. It is our confession. We are together saying something. Homo, H-O-M-O, means same. Like homogenous. I'm sure we all appreciate drinking homogenized milk. Right? Or if you're going to paint something, just like milk, you've got to, what do you have to do? You've got to stir the paint. Right? You've got to stir the paint, because otherwise it's going to have the oily substance in it and, and all of that. You've got to stir it so it all comes out the same. Homo, homogenized. Logia, well, we remember that word logos in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. From the word logos, we get the word logic reason, rationality, logic. And you also see in this word other terms, like for example, all the ologies. Biology. It's the study of life. 
Zoology, you go to the zoo to see the animals. Zoology is the study of animals. Geology, the study of the earth, the rocks, the, the rivers, the hills, the mountains, the valleys, and so forth. Psychology is the study of the soul. It's the study of what's inside a person. And so there we find that word logos or logia. And as I said, it, is, it means to speak the same. To, this word homologia, to speak the same, or as I suggested a moment ago, we could translate it confessedly. We confess together. We agree with other people. We are like a great symphony. So you know what a symphony is? You know what a symphony is? You've got all the instruments and they're all playing their own tune. No, no, no. What are they doing? They're playing the same tune. They're, they're playing from the same sheet of music. And that's what causes the symphony. It's all, it all harmonizes together. Now when we look at the book of Hebrews, when we look at the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, we see this word being used as well. Hebrews 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, homologia, our confession, Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. He, again, the writer goes on to describe certain aspects of him. Look at chapter 4 of Hebrews, chapter 4 and verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We're speaking the same thing. We're agreeing in terms of who Jesus is and what he has done. And also chapter 10 and verse 23 of Hebrews. 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. This idea of confession is found in various places in the Bible. I'm reminded First of all, in this regard, of 1 Kings chapter 8, which is a very interesting passage. This is the dedication of the temple, you remember? This is the prayer of dedication. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 33, Solomon says, When your people Israel defeat it before an enemy, because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple and verse 35 again when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants we find in the new testament in the gospel of luke chapter 12 Chapter 12 of Luke and verse 8. In chapter 12 of Luke and verse 8, we read Jesus saying, Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. 
In John chapter 9 and verse 22, John 9, verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. This is the blind, the parents of the blind man. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he'd be put out of the synagogue. You probably have memorized the book of Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, where Paul writes that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession speaking about, speaking the same thing about, confession is made unto salvation. We find also in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 11, Philippians 2 and verse 11, Philippians 2 verse 11, where the Apostle Paul says, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then if we look at the epistles of John, 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. And I want us, I want us to note the context here. The context is making a distinction between false doctrine and true doctrine. And in that context then, in 1 John chapter 4, where John says, test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, verse 2, by this you know the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Again, verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. See, it's not just confessing the name, but it's all that is entailed in the name in terms of who Jesus is. Is he the one who is God come in the flesh? Yes or no? And so you must confess the truth about Jesus, not just a bland name, if you will. And Second John, from which we read today, we read uh, that epistle, Second John, verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now confessions, my friend, confessions of faith can come in all lengths. It can be something as simple as an early confession of the church, Jesus is Lord. Short, simple, to the point, powerful, important at that time. Or it can be rather long, as the Westminster Confession of Faith we have in the Presbyterian Church, which consists of 33 chapters. And, of course, one of the reasons why we have that is because controversy arose throughout church history 
And therefore, there was this desire to try to formulate, to, to that I say, reflect biblical doctrine by, by writing this confession of faith with regard to various controversies that had arisen. So confessions are important as tools, like screwdrivers, but creeds are important as well. A creed is designed as a personal statement. I believe. It does not mean that it does not contain objective truth, but the person then, in saying a creed, owns what is being said for himself. I, I believe, as in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and so forth. But also we have catechisms. And as you know, from our dealing with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a catechism is designed to be in a question-and-answer format, a back-and-forth, asking the question, giving the answer. This format of question-and-answer is found in the Bible. In the book of Exodus, chapter 12, dealing with the Passover, chapter 12, verse 46 Excuse me, verse 26 and 27. Exodus 12, 26 and 27. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Question. That you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. We find the same thing in Joshua chapter 4. In Joshua chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. The book of Joshua chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. And each one of you take up a stone and a shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And finally, in this regard, we find in the life of the Lord Jesus, in Luke chapter 2, remember how he's left behind? Remember that? In Jerusalem, his parents were all worried about him. Chapter 2 of Luke, verse 46. Now so it was that after three days they found him, Jesus, in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Jesus engaged in catechism, shall we say. And so we have the questions and answers. And I'm sure 
I am sure that you know how valuable it has been that before the call to worship every Lord's Day, we do these catechism questions and answers. We know that there are several that are very popular in this church, such as, what is sin? I'm not going to ask anyone to recite it, but we know the answer. Sin is any want, any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, put to our account, and received by faith alone. Years ago, there was a minister I had as a pastor briefly in Jackson, Mississippi when I was living there and going to seminary, a man by the name of Brister Ware. I think he's going to be 87, Lord willing, in uh, October. This was many years ago uh, when he was, uh, he was in his 40s, I guess. I remember him telling the story of being at university and some philosophy teacher sneering at him and say, and say, to the class and saying, what is God? And of course you know what he did. He responded, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. It is being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Boom! It's powerful, isn't it? It punches back, if you will. It gives you not only tools for your, our own faith, it gives us weapons in the fight in which we are engaged. Now, I have three observations today before we get to the application. The first is this. Every field of endeavor has a system of doctrine. Every field of endeavor has a system of doctrine. For example, science is based on nature. Okay, Science is based on nature. So, biology. If you want to study biology, you get a microscope and, and so forth, and you, you uh, maybe a Petri dish, and, and so you study biology. You, you observe, you, get the, you, you do experimentation, you observe, and so forth. And so the, the substance is there in terms of the biology. So you don't change what's there in nature, but what do you do? you start to describe those systems as in textbooks, right? So no, I mean, and again, biologists can get this wrong, especially when they start talking about evolution and other unscientific things. But nevertheless, you get the point that this is what you want to do. You want to study medicine, you go and you study, uh, you, you study biology. And so the substance is there and hopefully the descriptions are going to be accurate. The same with chemistry. And so you have the elements. All, however many we have now, 117, I think is more now. But how, whatever the elements, however many elements there are, the carbon, nitrogen, palladium, potassium, and so forth. But here's the thing. As you study those elements, unless you want to blow up the lab, you want to make sure that you know what you're doing, right? 
you want to make sure that you know that if you put potassium, a bunch of potassium on water, there's going to be an explosion. There's going to be a, a serious reaction to that, for example. Okay? And it's the same thing with regard to theology, with regard to doctrine. So the doctrine is there. It's in Scripture, just like we read out of the book of nature. We read what is there. We want to read out of Scripture what is there, what is taught here. But we also, in order to help ourselves and others, we want to systematize that. We want to put these things together in such a way that they make sense and that they can be useful to us. So what we do then is nothing different than in every other field of endeavor. Every field of endeavor has a system of doctrine. And the same is true for the church. Secondly, every church has a creed or confession of faith. It may not be written, but it governs the church nonetheless. And of course, how much better then to be open about what you do believe. Maybe you've heard the saying, no creed but Christ. You ever heard that? No creed but Christ. Well, that sounds good. Except, of course, you need to recognize, first of all, that it, that it is self-contradictory because in itself it becomes its own creed, doesn't it? But secondly, it is inadequate because the question then is, what Christ? The Christ of Islam? The Christ of liberal Christianity? the Christ of liberation theology, and so forth. Which Christ is it? The Christ of the Jehovah's Witnesses? So when you say no creed but Christ, well, that, well Christ is Lord, Jesus is Lord, but, who, but beyond that then, who is he? And so more and more you want to describe. So this is true with regard to doctrine. What is the Bible? How many persons are there in the Godhead? Three. Same in substance, equal in power and glory. Who is Christ? As we see here in 1 Timothy 3, he is God come in the flesh. What about the doctrine of providence? That God has foreordained whatsoever things come to pass. There are folks who deny that. But the Bible affirms it. Whatever comes to pass, God is the one who has foreordained it. That's important to state because there are folks who deny that. What about salvation? Do our works play a role at all? Absolutely not. It is by means of grace and by means of faith alone. What is the nature of faith? And so forth. Or in terms of worship, how to worship. How should we worship? We talk, we've talked about that recently in terms of the second commandment, as well as why we sing psalms and do so exclusively. There are other things that we could talk about. Also, in terms of the sacraments, who should be baptized? What is the mode of baptism? It's important for a church to state what it believes on these things. Polity or government structure. What are the officers? Who should those officers be? And so what we find then in terms of these confessions and catechisms is that the church refines its understanding through the centuries. So we don't change, we're not changing the doctrine, but we're trying more and more to understand it, just like a biologist tries to understand 
biology just like a chemist tries to understand chemistry. And so then thirdly, by way of observation, not only does every field of endeavor have a system of doctrine and every church a creed or confession of faith, even if it's not written, but thirdly, part of what confessions and creeds and catechisms help us do is to remember. My friends, we are facing attempts by wicked governments, the media, and schools to erase memory as part of an effort to make us forget who we are and who our heroes are. That's a threat to our society, the destruction of monuments and the erasure of history. But there is a greater threat in terms of memory with regard to doctrine and biblical knowledge. And creeds and confessions and catechisms help us remember, help us help to connect us with the past, as well as look to the future, but help us to connect to the past, to our brothers and sisters in centuries gone by, and help us then to remember who we are and what we believe. And so by way of application, know what you believe and make sure that it lines up with Scripture. Know what you believe and make sure that it lines up with Scripture, which means, first of all, be thoughtful about it. Don't emote, okay? At least not fundamentally. Fundamentally, think about it. As Isaiah 8, verse 20 says, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And in John chapter 5 and verse 39, John 5, 39, Jesus said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. You think you got, you think you know, you're wrong. Your theology is wrong, Jesus is saying. These are they which testify of me. Indeed, Jesus is the one who himself gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate. And he did so as our example, but also as our Savior. So know what you believe and make sure that it lines up with Scripture because, my friends, your soul and your children's souls depend on this because it is only by means of true doctrine that you know who Christ is and how to obtain salvation. It's only through the truth as it is in Jesus. Study the scriptures and use the confessions of the church to help you in that study. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we pray that this message would be applied to our hearts. We pray, Father, that we would see in our own day
uh, the overthrow of the false systems of teaching and of thought in the media, in government, in education, in our society as a whole, or even in churches. We pray, Lord, that Jesus himself, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who is the word of God, we pray that he himself would destroy those systems that are really in opposition to him. And so, Lord, we also pray that we would be given the grace here in this congregation, in this place, in this hour, we pray that we be given the grace to have genuine faith in the Christ who really does exist, the one who is God come in the flesh, the one who died, the one who is raised in glory. And so be pleased to accept our worship here this day. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.